Church, as we are in Acts chapter 19, I do hope that you will have your scriptures open and follow along with us there. We have a great deal to cover this morning. I find it a a really beautiful irony this morning that we have uh, a man who spent a portion of his life in Macedonia reading about Paul's travels in Macedonia. So thank you, Nate. Thank you, Ruthie, for sharing with us today. As we look here, let's go to the Lord first in prayer. Lord God, this word belongs to you. It is the record of your work through your people, purchased by your blood, equipped by your spirit, made effective and uh, confident in their salvation, in your Messiah, all under sovereign design and kindness of a good father. So Lord, we pray that your word would continue to work among us today, that you would make of us your witnesses, a faithful people who uh, give attention to your word and whose desire is centrally that you would be glorified and your word would increase in our midst, in our county, and in this time in your world. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We have a great deal to cover this morning, and I'm just going to give you a heads up right away. We're not going to cover it all. In fact, the first uh, significant portion of the message is going to be an apology for why we aren't going to cover a portion of the text. Let me share with you the way that this works. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 very briefly, and I want to observe two things. I want to observe what this passage tells us, what we can know very quickly and immediately if we pay attention to what is there. And then we'll look at some questions that the passage raises that are not immediately accessible to us in the reading of the text. It may take a bit of work to get to. What does this passage at the beginning of chapter 19 tell us? The first thing it tells us is the effectiveness of John the Baptist's ministry. The effectiveness of John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist came before Jesus, and according to the Old Testament prophecy about him, and according to his own testimony about himself, he was there to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He said, I must decrease, he must increase. It wasn't about John the Baptist. It was about John the Baptist's testimony about the one who was to come. He preached that to to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, one must receive the baptism of repentance, okay? That's made reference to in this passage. For to prepare for the Messiah was to repent of the ways of the world and to confess a desire to seek God. Now, why do I say that this is a sign of the effectiveness of John the Baptist's ministry? Well, just to give you a little heads up, John the Baptist did not minister in Ephesus. He wasn't there. He was in Israel, in Judea, and he was at the Jordan River there, and the whole of his ministry took place there in the desert. You can go and read about it. What in the world are we doing with disciples of John the Baptist now in Ephesus, and, and we get indications that they're actually scattered all about? Well, this just tells us that John the Baptist's ministry did go out from Israel, much the same way that the ministry of Jesus ends up going out. And it doesn't just prepare the people of Israel who are in the land of Judea and around Jerusalem and Galilee. It prepares the people of God who had dispersed to the cities and nations. Secondly, more obvious to us is the necessity that Jesus is the Christ. 
Now, these disciples, they had news that the Lord was at hand and that the Messiah would soon come, right? That's what they, that's the news. That's a good news that John the Baptist preached. But they had not heard that Jesus was the Messiah, or they had misunderstood something about it, or they had not understood that, that Jesus had received the Spirit himself in his baptism, and, and that this, Jesus had promised that the Spirit would come. There was some confusion about these things, and that the Messiah had died on the cross for their sin and had risen to take up new life for them so that they could be baptized into his name and so become partakers in his death and so partakers in his life. And so we see not only the effectiveness of the ministry of John the Baptist, but we also see the necessity of the ministry of Jesus the Christ. And then third, we see that there is a relationship between the Holy Spirit and faith in Jesus as the Christ. That's so important. There's something that happened that these disciples came to understand about who Jesus is and about his gospel and about Jesus as the Messiah that they had not learned from John the Baptist just yet, that when they learned it, they were baptized and received the Holy Spirit. This is a reality that I cannot take a good time, bit of time this morning to explain, but it is clear that there is a distinct connection between these three core Christian realities for the disciples all throughout Acts. The nature of the relationship is not always clear. I don't think it's terribly clear here. But there is clearly a relationship between the Holy Spirit, faith, and Jesus Christ. Now, those are three things that are clear in the passage. The things that we can know and we can glean a great deal from the passage in those things. But the passage also raises a few questions. The first question that I would ask of the passage is, what is the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus? It doesn't go on to explain that fully, though it does give us a bit of information. Clearly, there is a distinction as the disciples in Acts 19 were baptized in the name, not in the name of, but into the baptism of John, and that they are baptized again into the name of Jesus Christ. These seem to be distinct from one another. Second question. What is the relationship between the timing of these disciples' belief, their baptism, and the Holy Spirit coming upon them? What's the, what's the timing of those things? I wouldn't say it's terribly clear. It doesn't seem like it all happens immediately at once. It seems that maybe they happened right after one another. But third question, is the Holy Spirit coming on them in the way that it appears to be in this passage Something that should always happen when a person believes. Now, my guess is you were asking that question too, or some variation of it, when you read it. Is, is that, because it didn't happen exactly like that for me. Is that the way it's supposed to happen? And I, I hear news of some people who, who seem to have it happen like that. And here we get to the heart of what is, brings us so much confusion about the passage. Is what is described in Acts 19 normative for the church at all times? Or is it perhaps a, simply a description of a un, reality unique to an apostolic period between the gospel accomplishment of Jesus 
and the establishment of the church upon the apostles' teaching about the gospel of Jesus. You see, the news about John the Baptist and the coming of the Messiah had already gone out. But news about the Messiah, though the Messiah had already performed the gospel, had not yet come to these disciples. Now I've framed the question and hopefully whetted your appetite a bit for some more exploration of this passage. But this morning, I have to confess, we will not be exploring the question any further this morning. Hopefully, I've given you just enough information to get a question in your mind if you didn't have it already. I have to confess something, and hopefully it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise to you. There are times when a pastor has to admit that a question in a passage requires more attention and preparation than the current season of ministry affords. And this is where we are this morning. Joel and I sat down, was it Monday or Tuesday? And we're looking at this and we said, we aren't ready for this. Well, we aren't. Jeremiah, you're not ready to preach on the answer to that question just yet. We've got some work to do and we will do that work. But what we did think is it would be a good time to step back and teach something else. I wanted to take time this morning to do two things. To make sure that the word was read. Just because your pastor or your elders or your leaders have a question about the text, to be honest, I think I know the answer to it. I just don't know that I could demonstrate it well for you this morning from the scriptures But just because we don't necessarily fully understand does not mean that the word is not powerful and should not be presented for the people, for your attention to be brought to the text. My hope is that you would apply yourselves to further study of the word because the end conclusion is this. The believers have the Holy Spirit of God. You do. And the Holy Spirit of God is the one who has inspired the word and will make it fruitful in your life. And so let us confess with joy that Acts 19 is for our joy and edification. And so let's apply ourselves to study. Let's get to it. Secondly, to draw your attention to a practice the elders have committed ourselves to in the study and the preaching of the word. Uh, This practice is called, just going to throw it out there for you if you like the big words, consecutive expository preaching. All right, consecutive expository preaching. By expository, you hear the word expose in there, right? By expository, expository, we mean a commitment to make a practice of preaching with a dogged attention to the text of the scripture, to expose what is there, not what is here. Okay? That is to privilege the words of the word. This is our conviction and our intention. To strive to make the main point of every message the actual main point of the scripture that is actually before us. And to see that exposed for us as we preach. Secondly, consecutive. By consecutive, we mean a commitment to work our way systematically through the whole passage of the scripture. We believe that this commitment to preach through the whole passage of scripture is the best way to to help us to avoid a tendency that we would have in ourselves to to simply preach our favorite passages, kind of walk through the Bible and say, these are the ones that I kind of understand, and so I want to share those with you. To preach only passages that we find easy to preach, given our limited opportunities to study. Or to preach only passages that appear to favor our preferred doctrinal position. Friends, that is one of the most great dangers, because the fact is, 
Everybody's got a preferred doctrinal position. And then there's the doctrine of the scriptures. And we want to be transformed and confronted by them. I mentioned this commitment to consecutive expository, exegetical expository preaching because it's this commitment that's caused us to see this crucial, though difficult, passage about faith, baptism, and the Holy Spirit. It's because we're preaching through the book of Acts that we are brought to Acts Acts chapter 19 before us today. More importantly, in our study and preparation, sometimes we move slowly, and sometimes we move very quickly. That's just a little heads up as to the way the next month is going to go. Joel is going to move us right through the rest of Acts, but he's going to study the whole of it. It's this commitment that doesn't let us pass over a text like Acts 19 lightly. We have to pay attention to what is there. And yet, I've already told you, we're not going to look at it closely at the beginning of Acts 19 this morning. So instead, I want to share with you our plan for August. Following my sabbatical in June and July, uh, we're going to return to three or four main themes in the book of Acts. And just do a little bit of a recap. We spent a year together in this book, right? We're going to go back and pay attention to some of the things that we've seen. And Acts chapter 19 is one of the things that we have seen that we deserves a little more of our attention. We hope that a return to recap will serve us well in this incredible book about the witnesses that God has sent out with his word, by his spirit. Now, that said, we're going to pay attention now to the second half of the passage. You're going to see that we're going to move very, very quickly right through that middle portion of the sons of Sceva. And on to the riot that begins in verse 21, 23, and around that section. In the main of our message this morning, we'll draw our attention to that riot in Ephesus. This passage is interesting because it's the telling of a story in which really none of the apostles, none of the leaders of the church really even participate. They certainly don't really say anything. In fact, Paul doesn't actually say a word in the whole of the episode, but the word that he preached went ahead of him. In fact, the word of the gospel was becoming well known in the region so that any who associated with the church were beginning to experience the same trials as the Apostle Paul. So as the Apostle Paul was going out with the word of the gospel, the church that were believing it and sharing it among themselves and then the communities were beginning to experience some of the same trials that Paul was experiencing. We see that in our passage today. We'll also see two more examples of the companions of Paul. We see that in verses 21 and 22. Timothy and Erastus, two of his helpers are sent back to Macedonia. We see some ongoing movement. We see the fact that this is a church. A church that is participating together. It's not just the Apostle Paul. Here's how one commentator, David Peterson, puts it. These colleagues acted with a measure of independence, standing in for Paul in some contexts, so that for all his heroic stature in Acts, Paul does not stand alone. Once more, an implicit ecclesiology, that is, teaching about the church. That's all that means. Once more, an implicit teaching about the church is indicated by Luke. The point is this. Paul is an apostle, and he is a missionary, and he's proclaiming the gospel, and he's planting the church. But it is not Paul's religion. It's not his gospel. It's not his truth. 
It's the truth of the scriptures, the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. That's one of the reasons why often I try to avoid saying Paul says, Paul says, and in Ephesians, Paul says, right? It's the Holy Spirit of God says, and he said it through his church from the beginning. It's been the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the prophets from the beginning. The Lord has a church, and it's the church's job to bear witness to his name and his gospel. That means that while the church is established on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the church still only has one head, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at our passage this morning as we go to verse 23, At that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. No little disturbance. Now, we know that this is an important episode in Acts just by looking at the amount of space that's given to it. It's a very important episode. This no little disturbance is a climactic moment for the church in this region of the world, in Asia. Now, if you look at verse 26... Look at it with me. And you see, this is Demetrius speaking, one of the rioters, really stoking the fire of the riot. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Do you hear what the word that's gotten into Ephesus ahead of Paul says? The gods made with hands are not gods. Here we see the fruitful effect of Paul's ministry. Demetrius says, in almost all of Asia, that word is being preached. The fruit of the ministry of the word is truly increasing and multiplying, as it says it is, over and over again. This isn't just a hyperbole. It's not just an exaggeration. The gospel of Jesus is truly turning the world upside down in this region of the world. We saw this in what was read about the sons of Sceva in that section in between the passages we've looked at. That Paul was even attracting the unwanted attention of those who were imitating for apparent selfish gain and notoriety. And yet the result, even of those who were entering in falsely, the result was fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Everywhere the gospel is going, the Lord is being extolled. Leading to the cast off in this place of the practice of magic arts and superstitions by many who believed it. I love the the comparison that Saul, as we were reading this morning, that they they take all these books and they they throw them out there and say, we don't don't want them anymore. We're we're done with the magic arts. It came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And they didn't care. Silver meant nothing to them. And then we have Demetrius, the silversmith. And you can see very quickly, silver is all he cares about. So let's go to him. Let's look at verses 25 through 27. As Demetrius stands up and he offers a three-part argument and concern about the existence of this gospel preaching in the midst of Ephesus. Before we dig into the argument of Demetrius, we have to first understand a few things about the goddess Artemis in Ephesus. Artemis of the Ephesians is not. This is news to me. This is what you get for studying, I suppose. I found out goddess Artemis in Ephesus is not the same Artemis as the goddess 
of Artemis in the Greeks and Romans. In Rome, Artemis is known as Diana. They're not one and the same, though there's some syncretism and crossover that takes place. Artemis is a local deity worshipped throughout this part of Asia Minor. She was a a fertility goddess and a great source of pride for the people of Ephesus. They they constructed a great temple in honor of their god. The temple of Artemis was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It should be noted that regarding Artemis, that while the Greeks and the Romans, they seem to have no problem with also having Artemis of the Ephesians, even though not like the same god, the idol doesn't look anything like the idolatrous pictures of of Artemis in Greeks and Rome, they didn't seem to have any problem integrating the worship of their local gods with the worship of this local god, Artemis of the Ephesians. But this could not be the case for the Christians. You see, there's something different going on when the Christians show up in town. Gods made with hands are no gods. Christianity comes inherent with a clear understanding that there is but one God, right? It's been brought to our attention already this morning. There is but one mediator made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. It's exactly this sort of claim that would give the church so much difficulty in our passage this morning. They could have just jettisoned it and say, yeah, Artemis, great as Artemis, but great as Jesus too. They couldn't do it. I brought him a great deal of trouble in this passage. Let's look at Demetrius' argument. He begins in verse 25. These he gathered together as he got all these businessmen and craftsmen together. With the workmen of similar trades, he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. This line of business of ours will come into disrepute, he says. Demetrius begins an argument that will build in intensity and supposed importance. But it's worth noting where Demetrius begins. What's his first thought is? He gathers together his fellow craftsmen, begins appealing to their bottom line, right? He's a silversmith. He cares about silver. He works in silver, and with silver he makes idols. And these idols are sold to those who would visit in the region to to see the great temple of Artemis and to worship that local Deity, what would happen to the craftsmen if this trade dried up because some people realized that the idols they were making were not gods at all? That's where he begins his argument, and it's telling for us. Demetrius is going to continue on with a a more theological argument. He's going to get there. But his starting place betrays his, his true motivation. His concern is not truth or worship. His concern is for worldly gain. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, he says. You you know what the bottom line is, guys. Now let's pretend like we care about the theological argument. So he goes on to point two. Verse 27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also, right, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, The temple of the great goddess Artemis, regarded as nothing, he says, is his concern. Here he turns to the theological concern. What if the temple of Artemis, by which Ephesus is known, is brought into disrepute? What good is the the great temple of Artemis if it's just filled with silver, dead things? What if Paul is able to convince the people that the temple is actually just an empty building? 
What if the people discover that this is just the place, it's basically a marketplace, it's a mall for the sale of meaningless trinkets. He continues with his third argument in the same verse in 27. Also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Man, when you make your own gods, you've got to be worried that somebody's going to take them away, don't you? If Paul is able to convince the people that the temple is nothing, then the goddess herself will be slandered. And this isn't just a, a local Ephesian problem either. This isn't just one city that's worried about this. Demetrius knows the effect that the gospel is having throughout the whole region. Ephesus, as a city, will be brought into disrepute throughout the whole region. Of Asia. They're going to lose their great local goddess. And so he's concerned and he builds this supposed theological argument. But notice the order of how we tend to treat religion. You notice I said we. This isn't just a Demetrius power problem this morning. The way that we tend to go about it yes, there is a God, there is our interaction with that God through various religious practices and places. And finally, there is what matters most to us, how the religious practices impact our bottom line. Tell me, pastor, how I can have a better life. That is the inclination of our hearts. Demetrius sounds more like me than anybody else. I know what my heart says, and it says those very things. Don't allow yourselves, ourselves, and self-righteousness to believe that this is only a problem that idolaters have. This is the idolatry's problem. That's just evidence that you have a self-righteousness problem. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He continues the list, a bunch of sins, and closes with this word. Covetousness. You know what he says? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, covetousness, which is idolatry. It turns out that we all have an idolatry problem. We all have an idolatry problem. It's not idols that makes us idolaters. We're not safe just because we don't have little statues in our homes. It's our greed that reveals that we worship another God than the Lord as God. And that greed, it could be stealing tons of things, but at the end of the day, it's the stealing the worship that is due him. Worship, the worth-ship, the weight and value of our God is replaced by our covetousness for other things. By our covetousness, we are revealed to be idolaters, and we join Demetrius in his arguments. The passage continues, verse 28 through 34. When they heard this, this incredibly impactful argument that Demetrius has made that, that clearly really drew on their heartstrings, right? When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! They probably had a Dustin Kensru who picked up a guitar and started playing for them, and, and they had a blast just singing this great song of worship. It turns out that Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen are actually involved in a revival in Ephesus. This is a revival meeting. Here we have a raucous chanting. 
And Paul hasn't even said a word. (laughs) Tell me the gospel doesn't have an impact in culture. In verse 29, it continues, So the city is filled with confusion, and they rush together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and the Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. The city was filled with confusion, it says. So we have one man making an argument that appeals to the bottom line of our hearts, our covetousness. And then those group of people get together, and I'll tell you, covetousness is infectious, and we don't even know what we're coveting. And they get together, and they're all screaming in confusion, greatest arguments of the Ephesians. There's a photo of the theater of Ephesus. This happened. They filled those steps, and I'm sure it was overflowing with the Ephesians concerned, right, for the worship of their God. For the bottom line, the reputation of their city. But do we still have confused, riotous reactions like this today? I mean, surely that just happens in old temple ruins. We don't do, that's just silly that we would be carried away with such covetousness today. You know, the first thing I thought when I read this passage is we have an obvious modern equivalent to this foolish, blind outrage and clatter. You know what it's called? Social media. I don't care which one you decide to name. And, and social media, by the way, is not the problem. They didn't have it then, and they still had a problem. The problem is our heart's outrage and covetousness. Look at what verse 32 says again. It, it says, most of them did not know why they had come together. They were just retweeting. <laughs> Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Yeah, yeah great Artemis. How often does hashtag activism become viral far more quickly than it's even possible for anybody to know what's happening? We don't even know what happened and we're already hitting the retweet and the hashtag and putting a selfie of ourselves right next to it. You're like, I don't do that. Okay, we're back to self-righteousness again. Here we go. We all do that. We all hop on that bandwagon, whether we're using social media to do it or not. The story of the scriptures often remind us how incredibly human we are. You see, when I read the word, what I keep finding over and over and over again are humans. And there's only one that human that interrupts that story. Only one. There is only one God. There is only one mediator. It says in verse 29 that they dragged Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travel companions. Again, Paul's travel companions, they're brought into the danger just because of their affiliation with the preaching of the gospel. You notice Paul's not the problem. They're not scared of Paul, that Paul's going to come in with a sword and lop off Artemis's head. Their concern isn't that Paul's going to come into town and build a better tent than the temple of Artemis. No. Their concern is for the clear preaching of the gospel. And all who are associated with it are brought into that affiliation and affliction. They're dragged into the theater by this mob. Consider this. Is it possibly the case that much of the outrage on TV, news, social media, political sound bites, whatever it is, that's certainly not an exhaustive list, are little more than an attempt by people, little different than these craftsmen, little different than ourselves, looking to get a mob all worked up to do something we don't even understand, but that threatens a supposed bottom line. How much of the outrage all around us is just somebody leveraging 
the mob for personal gain. Here's the challenge for believers in culture. We cannot be caught up in the mob. We, we, we can't be caught up in the mob. Whether it's fake news or unresearched sermon illustrations, we can't be caught up in the mob. And when we are caught up in what we cannot be caught up in, such foolishness, let us repent quickly. And, and listen, we have to make our confession just as public as our misinformation. You can't say, oh man, I can't believe I retweeted that. You have another tweet to write. And you got to hope that one gets tweeted like crazy. We have to correct ourselves, and we have to correct ourselves publicly, and we have to do so with humility and repentance. As believers, we understand the value of truth, and we must constantly be what Jesus calls wise as serpents and innocence as doves. Like, oh, that's too big of a burden. Well, it's what Jesus tells us to be. And then he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is life. There must be some way that in him we can be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I wonder if one of the ways that, that happens is just by repenting quickly when we're not. Let us be careful to discern what is motivating those with the loudest voices in the culture. You hear that? Listen to the motivations. Listen to what is, is the first soundbite out there, you know? Just like Demetrius. What, what, why is he causing this ruckus? Especially before we find ourselves repeating the narrative. Verse 30, then. Storyline continues, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, you don't have to think very much to think, Paul, this might not be the best idea, <laughs> right? Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Oh, there's the guy who says she's not great. <laughs> Come on in, Paul. We'll hear from you for a little while. I don't think this is going to work out very well. He wished to go in among the crowd. The disciples would not let him go. Paul didn't just discern that Demetrius was spreading a lie motivated by worldly ambition. Paul wanted to go into the public square and rebuke the lie. Paul's not afraid. I love it. I love it. He's bold. He doesn't shrink back from danger when it comes to the defense of the gospel. And friends, that is a right impulse. And the disciples made a very good call. Two sets of people actually prevented him from entering that dangerous scene. His disciples and the Asiarchs, who are high-ranking officers in the province of Asia. He'd made some friends higher up, and they said, Paul, don't go in there. So he doesn't. Wisdom prevails, and Paul would best bear witness to the truth if he's alive to continue to spread the reality that gods made with hands are not gods. And then we have that beautiful letter written to the Ephesians, all about the one true God and his way of salvation. Paul continues to his boldness, but he exercises some wisdom with the counsel of the church around him on that day. I'll tell you, there's a caution in there for missionaries and pastors and planters to, to make sure that we're not lone rangers, make sure we have a church around us, make sure that we are a church with the church, and that we're listening to wise counsel around us when we're making decisions like this. The passage continues. In verses 35 through 41, we have the account of the town clerk. We won't look at it closely. We don't have time. But the passage, as it draws to its conclusion, it's a bit anticlimactic, really. It took some work, but the town clerk managed to get the crowd to calm down just long enough to speak for a minute. And he makes two basic arguments. Verse 35, he says, Who does not know how great is Artemis? 
Well, apparently Paul doesn't know about how great is Artemis, neither do all the, these two dudes that you dragged before him and all the disciples. And, and all of Asia, it turns out, are beginning to think not great as Artemis. But he doesn't argue for the truth. He just restates the hashtag of the day. But he has a certain amount of authority. Finally, we've got a political leader to join us, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And that's all they wanted. And then he says, who doesn't know he's, Artemis is great? You ought to be quiet. Friends, we know that this isn't the truth because that's not how the Lord tells us to do with him. Great is our God. We're going to proclaim it. We're sent as witnesses, not as a people. You ought to be quiet. But his joining in a quieter version of their chant, though not no more reasoned out, still just as foolish and offers no more information, it serves to quiet down the crowd before they say or do anything truly rash. And the passage sort of fizzles out there in the theater. I want to take just a moment to reflect on a few things before we close. What we've seen throughout the whole of the passage, really all the way from the beginning of chapter 19, is we've seen that the gospel confronts culture. It always does. I want to draw our time this morning to a close by offering the main point of the message. The gospel is not presented as simply one among many options for someone to believe in. Like if this works for you, here's a great option. We highly recommend it, but whatever. That's not the preaching of the gospel. I don't care what it is that you said here. It's not the preaching of the gospel. Neither does the gospel do well as an idle subculture. Now, some will say, no, we preach the gospel as though it's true, but we just sort of do it off in our corner somewhere, quietly, where no one can hear. We're far more like the wisdom of the town clerk than the wisdom of Jesus sending his disciples. The gospel does not do well as an idle subculture. The word of God is always, what, over and over, throughout the book of Acts, it's always increasing. The word is multiplying, right? It's always pressing and moving and confronting and prevailing against the idolatries of the culture. Again, David Peterson says this, Christianity had the potential to change the culture of the city. But would it succeed? That's the, the business of the gospel, to confront and to challenge and to change. This is what we have to understand as a people called to live in the world, but not of it. Listen, this is so important. Listen carefully. Christianity can, should, and must peaceably coexist with peoples. Listen, make sure we don't get this wrong. Christianity can peaceably coexist with peoples. The church can coexist with other peoples in the community. Jesus himself teaches his disciples an incredible generosity and patience that they are to have with those around them. Even the prophets taught the Israelite people to seek the welfare of the city in which they found themselves in exile. Right? Can peaceably coexist with peoples. The gospel is the very motivation and means by which we seek to live at peace with our neighbor. But the gospel does not live at peace in the world of ideas. We can sit down and we can have meals together. And as we begin to share the gospel 
and the ideas and the convictions and the self-righteousness of our hearts and the idolatries of our hearts begin to rise to the surface on over that dinner table, we will realize that there is a conflict of ideas. The gospel is always pushing and challenging the status quo, even in those who believe it already. It's pushing and challenging us. Again, the gospel does not sit idly as merely a philosophical option. It confronts the godlessness and worldliness that is the natural trajectory of all cultures and all households and all persons who are opposed to Christ. And such we were before he confronted us. I want to take just a second to address the specific doctrine of idolatry. In our passage, the message of Paul and the church directly confronts idolatry that's rampant in the city. Paul is understood to be making the claim that the gods made with hands are not gods, okay? Gods and idols and various mythologies and religious practices were the normal way of life for the Ephesians. But the teachings of the scriptures challenge the normal flow of life, even our lives, you see. You see how that works. A specific teaching and implication of the gospel confronts unbelief in the people. And so, I want to close with this question, a challenge for all of us this morning. Whether you already believe in Christ or not, I encourage you to take this question to prayer, to reading of the word, and to your community groups. The question is this, before we pray. Are there any teachings in the scriptures that you need to allow to interrupt and confront your normal flow of life? Are there any teachings in the scriptures that you need to allow to interrupt and confront the normal flow of your life? My guess is you could probably begin with God's made with hands are no gods at all. Heavenly Father, it is a humbling and precious reality that at this time we are speaking to the one God. And you have not only promised to hear us, you have made the way through the sacrifice of the Son to bring us to you, to be heard, to to boldly approach the throne of grace. So, Lord, we, we say... We join together and say, Jesus is great. But we don't say that on our own authority. We are simply repeating what we know to be true from your word. Jesus is great. Our God is great. And yet, just as we have prayed in our prayer of confession, very often our lives look like something else is great because we are covetous idolaters. I pray that you would confront our idolatry and cause that to be less so not because we've identified it and decided to throw it away, but because we have become enamored with that which is real and true, not that which is false and fleeting. Thank you, Lord. We trust you that your spirit would work by your word, that your gospel would go out into our hearts, and as your gospel goes out into our hearts, your gospel would go into our households and into our neighborhoods, and that it would be clear that we live far more than peaceably, but of benefit to our communities and neighborhoods and workplaces. But even as we do so, I pray that the gospel would be so clearly on our lips and in our minds and in the way that we walk 
that there is a conflict in the world of ideas, in the world of what is true. Thank you, Lord. This is much to ask of you, but it's exactly what you have asked us to ask for, so we believe you'll give it to us. So we pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who has purchased salvation, transformation for us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.